0: This is Living Faith, the podcast ministry of First Baptist Church of Avon Park, Florida. We are located at 100 North Lake Avenue. Our Sunday morning services start at 1045 a.m. Sunday school is at 930 a.m. You can find out more information about First Baptist Church at fbcap.net. Bibles to 1st Samuel chapter 17. 1st Samuel chapter 17. This is a familiar passage to many of us. If you grow up in church, this is maybe one of the first um, quote-unquote Bible stories that you learn. Story of David and Goliath. I remember when I was small and we had little VHS tapes of animated Bible stories, the B- greatest adventures from the Bible, the Hanna-Barbera series. It was wonderful, and the kids went back in time, digging, and they, 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 they just—it was basically the Bible story, and these kids got to witness it firsthand. But I loved it because the music was great, and and uh, the animation was good, and you know that kind of thing. It was Hanna-Barbera, not even Disney. So that tells you how much I really enjoyed it. But I remember one of the first ones that I had. In fact, the first one I probably had was David and Goliath. And how simple is the story of David and Goliath? That Here's this young boy, and here's this giant. You know, grow up thinking he's this massive, monstrous giant. And he goes up against him, and everybody can't believe it. And he won't put on the king's armor, and he won't take the king's weapons. And he faces this tremendous, massive, monstrous giant. With just a sling and a stone, the giant dies... What's the moral of the story? Be like David. Be courageous. Be brave. Be faithful. Go home thinking, that's great. You know, that's good. Come to Daniel in the lion's den. Daniel gets thrown in the lion's den for praying in public. Uh, He's delivered by the hand of God. Here comes the moral. Be brave. Be courageous in public or something like that we read about moses moses go take the people out of egypt and take them into the promised land great here comes moses takes the people there's the 10 plagues they cross the red sea what's the moral be like moses be brave be courageous well, i hope tonight as we look at this uh, this bible story from first samuel chapter 17 we see that god has put more here than simply be courageous be brave Because if we're always reading ourselves into these Bible stories as the hero, we're missing the big picture of the Bible. And that's what we tend to do is we tend to read ourselves in somehow and some way into it. We've got to figure out what, what are these Old Testament stories and passages that are sometimes so mysterious and so veiled and foreshadowing and types and prophecy and symbolism. What does it have to do with me? And so in an effort to apply it to ourselves and, and to our lives, we try to read ourselves into the passage. And more often than not, we try to associate ourselves with the hero of the passage. And we don't realize that in doing so, We're putting a burden on ourselves that we will never, ever, ever be able to live up to. If you're supposed to always be courageous, always be brave, always have faith in God, always do these things, and you're putting law after law after law on top of yourself, and at the end of the day, we're not that brave, and we're not that courageous, and we're not that holy, and we're not that righteous, and we're not that good. And so we see people like David, and we're trying to picture ourselves as David, and every time we come up not David, we think, man, I'm a terrible Christian. You've missed the entire point of the Bible lesson. Let's look together at 1 Samuel 17 tonight, and I'm not saying with fresh eyes or new eyes. We're not bringing anything new out here tonight. We're going to bring out what is here. So let's start in verse 1, and I've been very preacher-like. For some reason, it just came over. Maybe it was because Pastor John is back, and he's, he's he'd talking to me during the day, and I'm thinking in alliteration and all these things. But uh, all of the things I've done tonight are alliterated for some reason. It just came out that way. So helpful little outline for the passage tonight, starting with one, the unwelcome challenge, verses 1 through 11. Let's read that first. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Socoh which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soco and Azekah in ephes Damien. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side and Israel on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head and he was armed with a coat of mail And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. He had a bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Let's pray before we continue tonight. Oh God, this is your word This is not a fable, a story, or a myth, or a legend, a reading history, and a record of actual events that took place. Help us to pause and listen for your Spirit's guidance. I ask that he would be here tonight amongst us, and as I bring this word from your word tonight, that you would move through me, through your word, that you would capture hearts and lives for yourself here tonight. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. So we start with this unwelcome challenge. Israel and their big rival, the Philistines, gathered for battle. And here they are on one mountainside, the Philistines, and on the other mountainside, the Israelites, and in between is this great valley. And they're lined up, ready for battle, when all of a sudden the whole game changes. They're ready, they're lined up, they're issuing the war cry, they're rattling their sabers, as it were, and they're shouting at one another and taunting one another, about to rush down into the valley as the culture was to go to war, to go to battle. And then suddenly, a massive figure steps out of the Philistine ranks. Some of your versions might say nine cubits. It's really hard to uh, interpret what the Hebrew means when it says six or nine cubits. We can know this, that Goliath was between six and nine feet. He was a massive man. We can tell by the weight of his armor. His armor alone, if we're to take here what it says literally about the shekels of bronze that make up his, his armor, was 125 pounds. His armor was 120. That's like a small person <laughs> wrapped on Goliath. On top of that, a massive javelin and a sword. And he has so much armor and so much weaponry that he has two shield bearers that go out in front of him, carrying no doubt massive shields. He's a massive man, even if he's not the monstrous giant we've always thought of. He was a massive, ruthless warrior, well-trained and intimidating, as we can see here. He comes out, and the whole game changes. No longer army against army, but champion against champion. He comes out and says, I tell you what. Will circumvent this whole process. No battle, no war. You send me one man, and if I defeat and kill him, you'll be our servants. But if I defeat, or if he defeats and kills me, we'll be your servants. And it says, When Israel heard the challenge, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Let's move on to verse twelve. That's our unwelcome challenge. Next in our series of uns is the unexpected journey. Verse 12, now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the day of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul into the battle, and the name of his three sons were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him Abinadab and the third Shammah. David was the youngest of the three. The eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. Now notice that there's a little include there's a little a little, uh, conjunction there that goes between what's going on. We're talking about David's unexpected journey to the battlefield. And then there so we don't forget what's going on verse 16 for 40 days the Philistine came forward and took his stand. That means morning and evening he issued that challenge. Send me a man to fight me. And he defied the armies of Israel. This is just a little reminder of the story as we continue. Verse 17. Jesse said to David his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses like that. These ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Now Saul... And they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions and went, as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. So we're reintroduced to David here. I say reintroduced because if we go back to chapter 16, we see how David was chosen out of all of Jesse's sons. We see the three oldest here going to war. They're the warriors. They're they're strong and mighty and big. and Those are the strong men of Israel. Back in chapter 16, they bring one man after the other in front of Samuel the prophet. Remember, Samuel has come to anoint the next king of Israel. The Lord is displeased with Saul, and he's going to give Israel a new king in his time. But he sent Samuel the prophet out to anoint him. And he said, he's one of the sons of Jesse. So all of Jesse's strong men, Eliab, Abinadab, Shammah, they come before him, and one by one the Lord says, no, no, no. And it's kind of like a little Cinderella story there at the end, isn't it? Don't you have any more sons? Well, you we have one, he's a scrawny little kid, and he's out watching the sheep in the field. And Samuel says, go and bring that one to me. And as soon as David appears before Samuel, it says, the Spirit of God rushed upon David. And then Samuel opened his horn of oil and poured it on David's head, anointing him as the next king of Israel. And so we see that God had already chosen David to be king before this. The three brothers go off to war. They're on the front lines fighting the Philistines. David is going back and forth as a kind of intermediary, bringing supplies from his father Jesse to the army and also serving as Saul's armor bearer. a a challenge and a position he got back in 1 Samuel chapter 16. So we're reintroduced to David. He's there. He's bringing the supplies. He's serving his duty with Saul. And suddenly he hears the war cry. They're out on the battlefield rattling their swords and and taunting each other. And he drops everything he's got with the front camp. And he runs to the battle lines to to see what's going on, to be with his brothers and to be there in the middle of the action. And while he's there, we get that intersection Goliath comes and he issues his challenge. To this point, it's been 40 days. And Goliath has defied Israel and their God twice a day for 40 days. That's 80 challenges to Israel. 80 curses by the gods of the Philistines. And 80 recorded, at least, blasphemies against the Lord God of Israel. That means an aimless, ongoing, endless Taunting of Israel and her God by this Philistine. David's there running to the front lines to greet his brothers. And it says, as he talked, verse 23, as he talked, he heard Goliath defy God and challenge Israel. Let's look at what happens in verse 24. We move on to an unfit champion. Verse 24. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, when they saw Goliath, they fled from him, and they were much afraid. There's your, there's your reaction to Goliath by the whole army. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches, and will give him his daughter and make him his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, the eldest brother, when he heard him, spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, what what have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. So here we have David rushing to the front lines. He hears this taunt from Goliath. And we can almost, if we were in David's shoes, there's something different about how David responds to this issue. We see at the beginning of that passage in verse 24 that when the other army members hear Goliath's chant, it's the same thing as before. They're terrified. They turn away. They close a deaf ear to what Goliath is saying. But then we see David. David hears it, and David has to listen again. As if to say, wait, what did he just say? What is that? uncircumcised Philistine yelling at us? I love that. It's like a little insult mixed in there. What, what, how dare this uncircumcised, unclean Gentile defy the armies of Israel and defy the name of Yahweh? Is David the only one? The others shrink back in fear and David rushes in listening to this taunt. David is stirred up. He begins to ask, what happens to the one who kills this guy? <laughs> what happens to the what? What are you going to give the guy who ends up killing this guy? All of you are turning away in fear. Is there no reward? Will no one stand up and kill him? It's funny then that his older brother chimes in and says, David, what are you doing here? I know, I know the presumption of your heart. You're proud and you're arrogant, and you just want to be here and see the battle. Here's Eliab, remember the oldest, the strongest of Jesse's sons. He has not been willing to this point to face Goliath. He's just as cowardly as the others. And yet here's the scrawny brother who's been anointed king showing up on the battle lines where he's not supposed to be. He hears the challenge and it makes him mad and he wants to do something about it. And don't you know it's just like the jealous older brother to say, "Mm mm-mm, this is my army. I'm the oldest I've been here longer, David. Why don't you come back when you're older? You'll understand then. It's funny, isn't it? You're just young. You're just full of energy, and you just want to argue about everything. Why are you here, David? Go home. Do what you've been doing and watch the sheep. Come back when you're grown up. Verse 31. David hatches An unthinkable plan. I love these things. When the words of David were spoken and heard, they repeated them before Saul. Saul sent for him, and David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. You're but a youth. He has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered him out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by the beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. Here it is again. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor, and he put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. This truly is an unthinkable plan. David's had enough. Saul, don't let... Why are you so afraid of this guy? That's what he's saying. Don't let your hearts fail because of him. This uncircumcised Philistine, who is he to come and defy the armies of the living God? Who is he to blaspheme the holy name of God? I'll go and kill him myself. You can imagine Saul's shock, can't you? You're not going gonna to do no such thing. You're too young. You're too youthful. He's been a man of war from the time he was your age. And here you are, a shepherd boy. David reminds him, yeah, but as a shepherd, I've killed a few bears and a few lions. And when a lion would dare come and grab one of my sheep, or he would come after me, guess what I did? I grabbed him by his beard, and I struck him, and I killed him. And David says, besides that, it's the Lord who delivered me from all those things. And if the the Lord will deliver me from the paw of the lion and the bear, he will deliver me here also. You can see Saul kind of, oh, you're going to bring God into it. Got to be all spiritual, David fine, go, and he gives him this little half-hearted benediction, the Lord be with you, and then David tries the armor on, it's way too big, I like that it it hasn't been tested, that sounds like David's, that sounds like an excuse, you know, it's too big for him, and he can't walk in it, and David's like, um, I I can't use this, I haven't tested it yet, I don't know if that's what's going on, that's a little imaginative reading into the text, don't ever do that, He can't wear the armor. He doesn't want to go into battle with it. He puts it aside. He says, I don't need any of this stuff, Saul. And as if to draw attention to what he's doing, he says he goes and gets five smooth stones, puts them in his shepherd's pouch, and he takes his sling, and he goes forward to face Goliath. Look at verse 41 as we continue to the uncontested victory. The Philistine moved forward. And came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. I like that. Ruddy and handsome. You're small and good looking, but you're not going to do much to me. He disdained him. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day, to the birds of the air, and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with a sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came near and drew to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistines with a sling, with a stone, and struck the Philistines and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. That's not a a slight inclusion there. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword... "'and drew out it uh, out of his sheath and killed him "'and cut off his head with it. "'When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. "'And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout "'and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, "'so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Shiraim "'as far as Gath and Ekron. "'And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, "'and they plundered their camp, "'and David took the head of the Philistine "'and brought it to Jerusalem.' and put it and put his armor in his tent. So here we have the part of the familiar story, right? With a few less Sunday school friendly uh, inclusions in there. The taunting. And at both times, did you get that? Both times, uh, Goliath says, I will kill you and I will offer your body to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. So dramatic, you know? And then David says, no, I'm going to kill you and I'm going to offer your bodies to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Remember that. Birds of the air. Piece of the field. Remember it for later. Goliath is there taunting, ready for war, ready for battle, intimidating as ever, his shield bearer in front of him, and here comes the little David running into the battle line, slinging his sling, and suddenly releases the stone. It hits Goliath on the forehead, sinks in, and this massive man tumbles to the ground. It doesn't end there. The Sunday school version ends there. The Bible version does not. The felt version ends there. <laughs> If I was doing the felt version, I would do this, though. Knock him over and then take some scissors and cut the head off. (laughs) This is what really happened here. Squirt some ketchup on it, I don't know. David doesn't have a sword in his hand. That's no small detail. But he walks up to Goliath and he takes Goliath's sword. Get, Get a load of this. This is Goliath's sword which was intended to inflict harm on David. So that the very instrument that this Philistine was going to destroy this man with is taken from him, and then he is destroyed with it. But not only destroyed, humiliated. As his head is severed from his body, this massive man, the champion of the Philistines, and it is brought back to Jerusalem with his armor. And God gives David complete Total triumph over this undefeated foe and humiliates him in the process. In verses 55 through 58, an unlikely origin. This is the prequel before the story. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of his army. Abner's a fun biblical name, isn't it? It sounds so... Isn't there a, who, Abner, he's on uh, Bewitched, isn't he? Isn't he the next door neighbor? She's always saying, Abner, Abner. Nobody knows these things. I watched Nick at night when I was little. Whatever. Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. The king said, inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And this is no small detail. Verse 58, Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. From Bethlehem. Well, hopefully as we walk through this entire story, you've been reminded of a, a fairly familiar biblical tale with maybe a little more detail than we're used to in the Sunday school versions. But what I want to do now is come out of just the telling of the story, or maybe the drawing out of a few principles. And I'm going to try as hard as I can to kind of apply this. Because like I said, we often try to read ourselves into the wrong parts of these stories. But what I want to do is, is take out some principles we can learn from it, before I move into a little, a little more theological thing later. David and Goliath is not merely a story about faith. Merely, key word. It is not merely a story about Courage. It is not merely a story about bravery, and it certainly is not merely a story about facing the giants in your own life, however you define those. As much as our contemporary culture wants to make this story about us and about our struggles and our giants and our difficulties, it's not about that. This is a story about a young shepherd boy who has been crowned anointed king. Literally called from the field, chosen by the Spirit of God, anointed by the prophet. Ultimately, this is a story about God. The God who called this young man. The God who called this young man who was the son of Jesse. The God who called this nation, Israel, out of nothing. The God who called Abraham, made a covenant to him which he intends to keep, even through this young shepherd boy. This is the God who the Philistines defy and whom Goliath blasphemes. Ultimately, it's a story of a God who defeats evil by openly triumphing over it using the most unlikely, humble, and ordinary means. So ask yourself, is this a charming Bible story? Is this just a little quaint story we tell our children? Or is this story the center of the entire universe? And I'm going to posit to you tonight that it is just that. It is a picture of the story that is cosmologically significant, not only to me personally, but to the entire world and the entire universe. In your life, though, there will be times of hardship, times of persecution, times of trials, times of giants in your life. So I don't want to skip over that as if it's not important. So in order to bring out a few principles, let's just say these three. Number one, identify a cause. Number two, fight with conviction. And number three, trust the conqueror. What do I mean by one, identify the cause, identify a cause? What we see here is that the armies of Israel are going to war. They're being defied. They're being challenged by this man. All the other army members hear the challenge. They shrink back in fear. They turn away. They run away. They won't listen. David hears it, and he does not turn a deaf ear. You see, the problem is we as Christians sometimes can be like that army. If I'm not drawn a too close parallel here, we can be like them. And we hear God's truth maligned. We hear bad preaching, not here, absolutely not here, but we hear bad preaching on TV. We hear our friends and family members talk about their relationship with God in terms that are not biblical, that do not work according to the gospel. And we just idly sit by and think, Okay, well, you know what? Who am I to say you know, what's right and what's wrong? She being like those army, this army here, this, that cowered away from Goliath, that shrunk back in fear, that said, I hear the challenge, I hear the defying of the armies of Israel, I hear the blaspheming of God, I hear all of this, but let's just, this, this doesn't exist. I'm going to plug my ears and close my eyes, and, and none of this is really happening. How often do we do that as Christians? in the church, in the world, in your family. We hear the truth of God blatantly assaulted and yet say nothing. I love the story of Luther as we get ready for October, which is the month we celebrate the the anniversary of the Reformation in Europe. Luther standing kind of at his trial. I mean, this was the time when, when Luther was put on the trial. He was given a chance to recant. The Roman Catholic Church said, all you have to do, Luther, it's this simple. All you have to do is stand there. You don't even have to mean it. You don't even have to mean it, Luther. Just say, revoco. I recant. I'm sorry I said bad things about the Pope. I'm sorry I said all this by grace through faith alone stuff. I'm sorry I brought up the Bible. (laughs) I recant. It's okay. No more arguments. That's all you have to say. He took a whole night to think and pray about it. Do you know that? before he came back the next day and stood there in front of them and said, I cannot and I will not recant. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Another reformer famously said, A dog barks when his master is attacked. I would be a coward if I saw that God's truth is attacked and yet would remain silent. How easy is it for us to be cowards, to hear God's truth attacked in public, in the family, in the home, in our businesses, wherever you are, to turn a blind eye and a deaf ear. And don't get me wrong, we have to identify between a cause and an opinion, between a hill to die on and a molehill. You heard the mountains out of molehill's expression. We have to determine between those carefully. You don't just make a cause out of anything, and then that's your thing. Now, that's my thing, and if you say anything against this, I... Preferences and opinions are not what we're talking about here. We're talking about primary issues of truth, the trinity, the inerrancy of Scripture, justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Those things on which our faith is built, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the virgin birth, the crucifixion for our sins, we cannot waver on those things. That's what we're talking about here. Where are the mountains? Where are the causes? Identify the cause. Sometimes your sinner friend does not need encouragement. Sometimes your children don't need encouragement. Sometimes they need truth. Sometimes they just need to be told, you're wrong. Now as Christians, we know we speak the truth in love. We speak it gently with patience, but it doesn't mean we don't speak it. Say, look, I love you, and I care for you, but this is wrong. This attitude is wrong. This at, the action is sinful. If we're to be like Luther, if we're to be like David, if we're to be like those great reformers we've been talking about that gave their lives for the Re- Reformation principles and for Baptistic principles on Sunday morning, we cannot turn a blind eye and a deaf ear when God's truth is assaulted. We must act. Identify a cause. Latch onto it. And then number two, fight with conviction. A conviction is something certain. We see David identify a cause. But he doesn't just stop. All the army of Israel has probably already identified the cause. This man, in fact, they bring David's attention to it. Have you seen this man who defies God in the armies of Israel? They know the cause. But they're not willing to fight with conviction. David says, okay, you won't do it. I'll go. David says, you won't go, I will. You come, Goliath, not only insulting Israel, but the God of Israel. You don't just come defying our nation, but you come defying our God, who happens to be the only God. That's a certainty that follows David into battle. That's that surety. That's the conviction that follows him. It's not even the conviction that he'll be delivered. It's the conviction that Goliath has defied the God of heaven. And David is going to fight for him, not only in a physical sense for Israel, but for the God who made heaven and earth. There's no wincing in fear with David. There's no shrinking back. There's no looking back. There's no turning around. It's headlong into the battle. That's conviction. There's focus. There's resolve. He's identified the cause, and he's going into battle. Our resolve should be the same. When truth is attacked, when the gospel is maligned, when people are living in sin, not turn a blind eye and a deaf ear. You're not doing them any service. That's not love. Love is rushing into battle, confronting error with the truth and with the gospel of Jesus Christ. God has not always promised to deliver us in the same way he delivered David or Daniel or the others. This does not mean that the truth of God has changed. Ultimately, we know God wins. Truth wins. The gospel wins. Luther again, if I can quote him again in the hymn, Let goods and kindred go. Let them go. This mortal life also. Then the body they may kill. You hear Luther? The body they may kill. You hear him before... Before the Diet of Worms, before he's put on trial, let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body, you know, I can't recant, so the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. That's conviction. That's what gripped Luther. It's what gripped David, and it should be what grips us. Zeal and conviction in the gospel and in the word of God run headlong into battle. No armor, no real weapons, just some stones. Oh, and the Lord. That's all he needed now. That's all we need. Number three, trust the conqueror. This is where stuff really gets good. Verses 37 and 47, we see David say who the real conqueror here is. He says, the Lord will deliver me. The Lord will deliver him into my hand. And then in verse 47b, the second part of it, David says, the battle is the Lord's. The Lord will deliver me out of this thing. The Lord will deliver you to me and I will kill you. And then lastly, this battle is the Lord's. In all of these battles, even in the face of death, we like David can be assured that the battle ultimately belongs to the Lord. Why? Because he has triumphed already. How? Turn to Genesis chapter 3. For those of you that used, to, you know, if you're students and you're writing essays in class now, if you've written research papers in college or, or whatever, you, you've had to do this. You've had to, in your introductory statement, you've had to put forward a thesis. This is what this paper will be about. Blah, 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 three points. A, B, C, one, two, three. That's how they tell you that's how you have to do it. And the introduction, your body and your conclusion. The introduction has to present the argument. And here, after the fall, God created everything. It was good. He walked with mankind in the garden. It was very good. He said, don't eat of that fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden. But they did anyway. And they plunged us into sin and death. And then he begins divvying out, divvying out the curses. Adam, I'm going to curse the ground because of you. Eve, there will be pain in childbirth now. There will be mixed up family relations between you and Adam and between men and women from this day forth. Everything is messed up because of sin. But in the middle of the curses, God says this, Genesis 3.15. You might want to highlight this, start, circle it, write it everywhere. This is the thesis of the entire Bible. And realize it or not, it's the thesis of our Bible story tonight. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, talking to the serpent. I'll put hostility between you, serpent, and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He, the serpent, shall bruise your head. I'm sorry, he, the woman's offspring, shall bruise the head of the serpent, and you, the serpent, shall bruise his heel. So you see here the fall, sin, death, Satan seems to have won. But God makes a promise. That the seed of a woman will come and crush the head of the seed of the serpent. You see that? Even as the serpent strikes at the heel of the seed of the woman, that heel is the same heel that's coming down to crush the head of the serpent. We see this theme all the way down to here, don't we? If you continue reading in Genesis, you see Adam and Eve, you know, Cain and Abel, Cain kills Abel. Cain's out in the wilderness. Oh, where's our children? God gives him another child named Seth. And he prospers Seth's lineage. From Seth comes Noah. From Noah comes Shem. From Shem's lineage comes Abram. Abraham. And obviously, you know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. One of his sons is Judah. Out of Judah comes Boaz, who marries Ruth. Whose son is Obed? Who fathers Jesse? Who fathers? David. And so we see this grand timeline all the way back from Genesis 3. I'll put enmity between the woman's seed and the serpent's seed. You're going to bruise his heel, but he will ultimately bruise your head. So we come to the story of David tonight. Enter our conqueror. The picture of the great seed of the woman that's come to deliver us. It's not Saul, it's not any of the mighty men of Israel, but it's the shepherd boy who's been anointed king. How about the instruments of our war, the instruments of this battle? It's not the armor of Saul or sword or spear or javelin, but it's a shepherd's staff, a small sling, and one smooth stone. A stone that is ultimately hurled through the air into Goliath's head. Striking him down. I repeat the details there. Genesis 3.15, what does it say? I'll put enmity between your seed and the woman's seed. You shall bruise his heel, but he shall bruise your head. Good job. A little response is good. He shall bruise your heel, but you shall, he, you shall bruise his heel, but he shall bruise your head. And here comes this stone flying through the air. The first one, by the way. He didn't need five. The first one, hurled by this anointed king, one of the sons of Abraham, at this giant's head. And it nails him right between the eyes. Not only that, but remember that sword? That sword that was intended to kill David? David then unsheaths, and he uses that sword to to do what? To cut off the head of Goliath. One smooth stone defeats the enemy and the Philistines run in fear as they're defeated and cut down by Israel. But this picture is even bigger. Picture is way bigger. I won't have you turn here, but you might can mark in your notes Daniel chapter 2. In Daniel chapter 2, we're not going to have time to read it, but in Daniel chapter 2 Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. This is Israel 500 years after David. They're in exile. They're in Babylon. Not only has the kingdom been divided, not only are they not in the glory days of David and Solomon anymore, but they're not even in their homeland. They're in a foreign land, exiled in Babylon, being judged for their sins. But God still raises up a prophet and makes a promise through him. And Nebuchadnezzar has this dream of this statue made up of ten different materials. And he can't figure out what it means. He keeps having the dream. He keeps having the dream and he calls his wise men in one at a time and they can't interpret it. Oh, but David hears of the dream mainly because Nebuchadnezzar wants to kill all the wise men. So Daniel's like, wait, 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 wait. What's so big deal about this dream that you want to kill everybody because they can't interpret it? I'll interpret it for you. And he begins to tell Nebuchadnezzar what it means. Needless to say, all these mix of materials represent these different kingdoms of the earth. One by one, they're built on top of each other whether it's Babylon or the Medes and the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans and whomever comes after them, including America to this day, we see our face there in those earthly kingdoms. We see the kingdoms of this earth, the kingdoms of Satan, the kingdoms of the prince of the power of the air. But David says, oh, then I see in your dream, O king, I see a small stone. I see a small stone that was not made by any man. And I see it being hurled at that statue. And when it hits that statue of all those earthly kingdoms, it crumbles to the ground. One small stone brings to nothing the kingdoms of the earth. If we were to continue to read David's story in 2 Samuel chapter 12, we would see that God makes him a promise. After Goliath way after he's been king for a while, God makes this promise to David. I will put one of your ancestors on your throne, and he will reign forever. That's what Daniel was prophesying about. That kingdom that was going to come from David that would never, ever, ever end. And it would come from David's lineage. From David, who came from Jesse, who came from Judah, who came from Jacob, who came from Isaac, who came from Abraham, whom God said, I will bless you and make your name great. How about Isaiah chapter nine? This is familiar. You probably quote it from memory. Isaiah prophesied of this same kingdom. What is this kingdom? Who is this king? Isaiah 9, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. Listen to this part. And on the throne of David, David, and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Micah chapter 5 verse 2 tells us even more. Tells us a little detail about where this king's going to come from. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who were too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming is from old, from ancient of days. Ephrathah sounds familiar, doesn't it? Bethlehem certainly sounds familiar. Jesse, the Ephrathite. From Bethlehem. And Saul says, Whose son is this? Oh, it's David. He's the son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Bethlehem. But from that same little town will come the ruler, a small stone, who will destroy and make nothing all the kings of the earth, and all the kingdoms of Satan, and all the powers of darkness, and all the powers of sin, and all the powers of hell. Turn to Matthew chapter 1. Last thing I'll have you turn to tonight, maybe. Matthew chapter 1. It's easy to skip over this part of Matthew, isn't it? The genealogy of Jesus. If we read Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, we see something very remarkable that Matthew includes for a reason. In other words, Matthew says, before I tell you about Jesus, I need to tell you where he comes from. Number one, the book of, Of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The son of David. The son of Abraham. You know what Matthew says in one verse? In one verse. This is who all of that was about. In one verse. This is the fulfillment of David's kingdom. And this is the king who is coming to reign forever. This is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham, the blessing that will bless all nations that I promised way back in Genesis chapter 12. Here in one verse, Jesus is it. Is it any wonder then that in Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus begins to preach, he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Again, something we're used to hearing, but to them, they would have been like, oh, you mean the kingdom? David's kingdom? The forever kingdom? Isn't it funny? That's Jesus' primary message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is here. Jesus appears as the son of David. He begins to heal people and to teach with authority, signifying that that kingdom is here. And then in John chapter 12, he says something very interesting before he's about to go to the cross. Before he's about to die, he says now, mark it down, now is the son of man glorified. Before the cross. Now is the judgment of this world. And now will the ruler of this world, Satan, be cast out and defeated. Now. What is he talking about? The cross. The crucifixion. The burial. The resurrection. You see, Satan's finest hour. He had worked his magic in Pilate. He had blinded Herod, done his thing with Judas. Satan's finest hour, the Son of God will be killed. It was also his defeat. As the very instrument, get this, as the very instrument that was going to be designed by Satan for the demise of the Son of God, The very weapon that was going to be used against him was taken from him and used against him to defeat him. And the serpent's head was crushed. Paul says this, you, when you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, get that, you were uncircumcised too. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. The cross, a common element of execution. It says, with the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in the cross. Satan's own instrument was used to defeat Satan. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You mean foolish things like a stone to bring down a massive giant? Yeah, like that. But that was a picture of something bigger that God was going to use a humble baby born in a humble town to humble parents with humble disciples, humble beginnings, a humble upbringing, a humble ministry, a crucifixion death for criminals. He was going to use all of that to defeat the serpent forever. Not with a great army. Not with a great big sword and a shield and a spear and marching into battle. But with a cross, a humble cross. Okay, one last scripture because this is too cool. Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. Remember Goliath taunting? Goliath said, I'm going to defeat you and give your bodies to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And then David said, no, 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 I'm going to defeat you and give your body to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Revelation 19, verse 17, let's look what happens at the end of time. Jesus has just returned on the white horse. His robe is dipped in blood. That means he's coming as a conquering king, wiping out the armies of God, or the, armies, the enemies of God. Revelation 19, verse 17, this is what happens after that bloody, nasty battle. I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called. Listen to what he calls. This is so good. To all the birds that fly directly overhead, come gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both slave and free, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet. And in its presence he had done the signs by which he had deceived those who received the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. These two were thrown into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the throne. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. That's a great time to say, this is the word of God. That taunt that Goliath was issuing, little did he know that way down the road, close to the precipice of eternity, it would be turned against him. Jesus Christ will return victorious over all of Satan's hosts and all of Satan's armies and then would begin the great feast. Not Goliath's feast, not David's feast, but the great feast of the Lamb. And all the birds will come and feast on the flesh of those he has defeated. Let's just boil it all down. One afternoon, in a valley between two mountains, as the armies of Israel cowered in fear, vast armies of Philistines, ready for war, their giant in the forefront, God decided to paint a little picture a story of victory in the face of defeat, a story of conviction. In the face of error. A story of redemption from the enemy. A story of salvation in the midst of judgment. A story of a lowly king exalted by God to the throne of Israel. A story of this king's kingdom that would never end. A story of an all-encompassing, uncontended, eternal victory. Don't we see the same thing in the gospel? Unlikely, Unlikely king and unlikely champion. A challenge issued, a battle to face. And here is Jesus rushing into battle. Not with a sword or a spear or great armor, but with a cross. Here's the thing. You're not David. You're not Goliath either. If you want to read yourself into this story, you're at best... The cowering armies of Israel. Scared out of your boots at this massive enemy of sin and death and hell and Satan. And you can do nothing to defeat that. And then we see the conqueror. Not you, not me, but the Lord Jesus Christ riding into battle on our behalf with a cross, a foolish instrument like a stone. And with one fell swoop, he completes the entire biblical story that I will crush the head of the serpent. That is our victory. That is our cause. That's our conviction. And that is our conqueror. That's why we sing tonight, lead on, O King Eternal. We follow not with fear, for gladness breaks like morning, where'er thy face appears. The cross is lifted over, over us, we journey in its light. The crown awaits the conquest. Lead on, O God of might. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for your word, and we thank you that the gospel of Jesus Christ is its central theme and message from cover to cover. Even from the very beginning, you promised a redeemer, a redeemer who would come and defeat the forces of darkness, who would stomp the serpent's head for us, and who would at last return us to Eden. God, for those of us here tonight that are believers, I ask that you would open our eyes to the majesty and the scope and the beauty and the glory of your word. Who could paint a picture like this except for you? For those of us here tonight who might not be believers, who don't yet understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, have never placed our faith and trust in you. I ask that by your Holy Spirit right now, through the proclamation of the gospel that we've heard tonight, the life, death, crucifixion, and resurrection of the one Lord Jesus Christ in our place, I ask that by that gospel and by your Holy Spirit, you would save them, that you would bring them to repentance and faith, and that you would give them the victory that you have won for us already. Oh God, this is your word. Planet in our hearts that we might look more and more like Jesus, our conqueror and our king. We ask this in his name. Amen.